0: of God's Word to Galatians chapter 3. With me, that's where we're going to be in just a moment. And as you're turning there, this is week six for us going through the book of Galatians. I love this book. Um, If you're new in this room, I'd love for you to fill out a visitor card in the seat back in front of you. There's also an information card if you'd like to serve in some specific way. Um, I want to point out that every person who joins this church, they're serving, they're contributing in meaningful ways to the ministry that's going on here. So they're not just joining as benefactors of the church, but they're joining to be part of the mission of the church in this place. And so we're grateful that people would sign up for that. Now, um, this is week six in the book of Galatians. Paul has already been confronting this group of people. He's going to continue his confrontation, and so today there's several things we're going to see, and I'll get to that in just a moment. I want us just to ask God, speak to us through your word today, and as we come before it, we pray that he would work in our lives. Let's read together, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? or by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before him to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that we would be glad recipients of it as we come before it. I pray that your fountain, that you just fill our cups, that you'd renew us, Lord, by your spirit. Just remind us of the truth for places that we've kind of drifted away from this truth of not only how we're saved, but how we're sanctified, how we become to, to look like you. And more and more as the days progress, I pray that you would call us back to this place, that we'd have an orientation towards you and your word and your work and your power at work in us. And I pray that today would be a significant stride in the right direction of correcting our hearts any places that we're tempted to believe in ourselves more than we believe in you. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's November 28, 1979. There's a group of tourists that have left from New Zealand on a flight to tour Antarctica. A few years earlier, New Zealand Airlines had started beginning these tours to go and see Antarctica. It was the way that anyone could see it. Like you could just buy a ticket on a plane and look out your window and see the seventh continent. And this way, you wouldn't have to freeze to death. And something really bad happened on this day. The flight crew had somehow gotten off course by two degrees. Very slight uh, mistake in their calibration. And there's this, this rule in flight aviation that called the 1 to 60 rule. For every one degree that you're off your flight path, And for every 60 miles flown, you'll end up one mile off of your intended destination. So they're two degrees off when they start, and their setting seems like this tiny margin of error. But the further they got away from where they took off, the further they got away from their destination because they had calibrated it wrong. So for the pilots, they didn't know that they're two degrees off, and instead of flying over this sound, they flew right directly into a mountain. And it kills everyone on board. There was one specific path where they could fly over the sound, over the corner of Antarctica. And two degrees off at the beginning resulted in 28-mile difference from where they were intended to be. And unfortunately, where they ended this flight. There was an article I read about this event. And it said that the two degrees was a tiny margin of error and it's about the limit of accuracy that any skilled pilot can achieve flying manually in good conditions. The writer continues on to say the best pilots are those who have the humility to admit that as good as they might be, they aren't perfect and hence they need to constantly check and recheck that they're still on track So there's all these different safety measures now to keep and make sure that a flight is staying on the intended track, that its intended track is where they're supposed to be, they're still there. Not only the pilots are involved in this, air traffic control, there's monitoring, communication, GPS, and all of these things in order to make sure that the destination that you're fixed on, that you're still on the path to get there. Now post 9-11, there's GPS, there's all these things to make sure that all of the flights that are in the air are going in their intended direction. And today, as we look at this passage, there's several things going on, but there's primarily a drift away from the gospel that's occurred, and the place where they set out is no longer the strength and the power in which they're living this life that God's called them to. Paul planted this church and then after leaving it false teachers come in and they tell them there's something more that you must do in order to be part of this company of faith. If you really want to be part of God's people you've got to do these other things in addition to it. And he says that they're fooled they're bewitched and that's why this letter is being written to defend his apostleship to defend the gospel itself and to defend these vulnerable Christians who've fallen under this spell of the Judaizers and And they've told them, you've got to do these these other things in, in addition to just believing with faith. They had heard the gospel, Christ crucified. And their belief in the gospel had gotten them into this place where they had received the Holy Spirit. They had started out by the Holy Spirit. And now, where are they? Paul's letter in this portion is correcting the path that they're in. He's recalibrating them to where they started. Last week we looked at two questions. How can someone be good? How do we live the blessed life? What is the actual good life? And this week, we're going to continue on with that second question. What is the good life? What is the blessed life? And his answer for this group of people was what the Jews attempted to take away from them. The blessed life was by believing, hearing, and believing, hearing, and believing over and over and over again. And in that hearing and believing, they would continue to be transformed by the power that had initially redeemed them. So part two of his confrontation is this, continue in the same way that you started. The Christian life is not lived in some other way than how it began initially. It begins with grace, it continues with grace, and that's why we regularly need to hear the gospel presented because we're so forgetful. We're so forgetful. And like the best of pilots who need to be recalibrating and and measuring, am I on the right path? Everyone who's believing and and believing in faith what the gospel proclaims, the best of us need to be open to corrections, need to be open to realignment, to what does this say about us? How do we believe it? How can we receive it? Augustine talks about our restlessness like this Thou hast made us for thyself, O oh Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Ultimately, he's right that the Lord himself is our refuge. He's the place that we're re- restless for. But unfortunately, most of us do not leave the restlessness b- behind whenever we find our rest with him. We're kind of like a puppy that's, that does not want to be held. Do You ever try to hold a puppy that doesn't want to be held? I mean, it's just constantly scrounging to get away hearing the squirrel hearing think, thinking about other things that is what every believer is like we're prone to wonder we're prone to drift away from this and this is what he's correcting in this passage this gospel drift the tendency to wander away from jesus himself as our only hope yes he is our refuge in the place where our souls rest but we still remain restless and we're kind of like a car out of alignment. I've used this illustration before. We're like a car out of alignment. As soon as you take your hand off the wheel, it's going to go into two, one of two ditches. Licentiousness, you can do whatever you want. Or legalism, you got to do things to earn God's favor. And if you do not hold the tension on this wheel, it will go into one of those, one of those ditches. There's a tendency of all of us to move away from grace towards something that we can better understand, that we can better control. Behavior management, modification. We desperately want a way to feel good about ourselves. And it's this fear that Jesus's offer of free grace is too good to be true. It constantly pulls us away. This fear that that couldn't be true. How could it possibly be true that God would give us his love and affection and affirmation through Jesus Christ in some way other than what we've done? And the doubt about that leads us to this place where we would grasp onto any other thing that we might control. And so I want to go through a few things that he says in this passage. First, his confrontation, Paul's confrontation and their drift. And then he reminds them with these these rhetorical questions to have a gospel orientation. What does that look like? And then last, he's going to remind them of God's covenant. And so I want to go through each of those and ask God to speak to us. You continue to pray with me that he would speak through the likes of these words. First, Paul's confrontation. I want to point out how he confronted them first. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. Like, you just hear... The desperation and the emotion that's full of lament and concern as he confronts them. Oh, how could you do this? Exasperation and desperation that he had introduced Jesus so simply to these people and they could so quickly drift away. He calls them brothers and children, his own children in chapter 1 and chapter 4. The way that he confronts them resembles that of a family. He's looking at them like brothers and sisters or like a father looks at a kid and says, what are you doing? How could you do this so quickly after I told you to do the opposite of this thing? It's parental in nature. It's pastoral. Even though he does not withhold his correction from him, Paul would not be contradicting himself in Galatians 6 where he restores them with gentleness So it's pastoral in nature. In in Galatians 6, it says that you should restore the brother that's drifted away with gentleness. He's following that pattern. He's exasperated, yes. He's familiar with them in a way that resembles family. He's pastoral with them. And he says, you foolish Galatians. You've left the pathway of how you initially received God's grace and abandoned it for some other means. This word foolish, I think he really means it too. Paul Tripp says that foolishness is more than about being stupid. It's a combination of arrogance with ignorance. There's a way in which they were confidently leaving this path. They had found some other way that was mixed with their own pride and arrogance. And he asked them the second question. This, uh, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's saying, how did you get entranced by this other message? What is the appeal there? How could you be so confused after I left you these primary principles of the gospel? And then he moves on to these rhetorical questions. He asks them several questions, and the conclusion of all of these questions is a drifting from one thing and towards another. They're drifting from, first, hearing with faith. And they're moving towards working with the law. So before I move on from Paul's confrontation, I want you to just pause for a moment and acknowledge God's grace to you in people like Paul. Anybody been willing to call you a fool before? I mean, other than your spouse, other than your parents? That is a great, that is a great grace to you. It is a significant grace to you that God would say, hey, you're drifting off the path and use human means to do that. There are people in our lives that function like air traffic control saying, hey, you're headed for a mountain here. It's going to stand in your way. If you found some other way to pursue Jesus with the lack of accountability, I promise you it will end in disaster. If you are not known by someone who cares enough about you to say, hey, I think that you need to recalibrate when you need to recalibrate, you will not recalibrate. God uses the likes of people like Paul to, to write letters like this and say, You uh, have drifted away from the truth. Jesus confronted people like this. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. When Peter was right, he was like, No man could reveal this to you except for the Father. When Peter was wrong, that he didn't want Jesus to have to die, he's like, Get behind me, Satan. Jesus was both of those things to the people that were closest to him. He was affirming when they were right. He was confrontational when they were wrong. And in his allegiance, in his denial, Jesus used those kind of words to both comfort and confront Peter. The gospel does the same kind of things today. God in the gospel is offering uh, to offend our pride regularly by the people who are close enough to us to see in the ways that we've kind of gotten off the path. And that leads to the next part of this gospel drift. What did he confront? And he uses these questions and he's revealing how they left hearing and believing and works and moved towards works of the law. And either through this explanation or the demonstration of what happened, he says first, here's how you need to be reminded. Second point, got Paul's reminder. First, you've left this foundation of their faith that you began by hearing and faith. Okay? Now you're pursuing something through the works of the law. So Paul's reminders, it starts with this, hearing with faith. They had heard such a vivid description of their salvation and what Christ had done for them on the cross. He's saying it was like a public portrayal of what happened. They could see it in their mind's eye. He talked about it. He talked about Jesus' suffering in their place for their sins. A couple of things about that. The gospel must be proclaimed in order for us to hear and believe with faith. So regularly, Paul is saying how he's eager to preach it in Romans chapter 1. He says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why? Because he believed that it was in this proclamation that God distributed his power to everyone who believed. So, the way that you came to faith, just remember it for a moment. If those of you who are in Christ Jesus today and you remember someday where someone explained to you what Christ did for you, just remember that moment. When it became real to you, God gave you eyes to see and ears to hear, as it talks about in Ephesians 3, as Paul prayed over the people. Have you ever had eyes to see and ears to hear what Christ did and accomplished for you personally? The gospel is inviting us into this deep awareness that, yes, we're sinners, and also, yes, we're loved, and, yes, there's absolutely nothing that we've ever done or could ever do to earn the affection that God has placed on us. Brennan Manning, he's such a mess, but I love this guy. In the Ragamuffin Gospel, he says, My deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus Christ. And I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. Generally, this is where the gospel understanding begins. That there's something that's been radically, sacrificially done for you that you could not earn, you could not deserve, and he did it. And those that hear it and believe it, something happens. Some supernatural thing happens that you could not have created on your own, that you could not have pursued on your own. God had to do something you could not do for yourself. And so I want you to pause for a moment and remember when you first heard this story. And for those of you who grew up in church and you grew up around church, it's okay if you can't remember the first time you heard it. But I want to ask you another question. Is there a first time where it meant something to you? If not, let that be this moment. Where it meant something to you, that Christ indeed had died for your sins. Paul, in this reminder of the gospel, he's saying, go back to the moment of salvation, how Christ was publicly portrayed, how you heard it and believed it. And then he calls these other things to mind. Remember how you learned. Remember how your heart perceived and believed that there was a proclamation and your heart became illuminated. You heard the gospel for the first time and you believed it for yourself. It wasn't just for the sins of the whole world. There were specific ways that Christ had been crucified for you. Remember this moment where the Spirit was received. Now, was the Spirit received by you because you really worked hard to receive the Spirit? Rhetorical question. Nope. Paul asked that one. Did you receive this news and believe it? Because somehow you had earned it. Nope. And then he continues on. I love this verse in Colossians 2. It says that, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, the way that you received him is the way that you continue. If you started this way, you don't kind of continue the Christian life in some other way. If you started by hearing and believing, then you continue to hear and believe. And that's the way that you progress in this Christian life. The second thing he calls them to remember is their suffering. He's like, Look, did you endure suffering in vain? When you believed this, it cost you something. Are you willing to say that all the things that it cost you to believe were in vain? Have you suffered for nothing, if indeed it is in vain? He's calling them to remember the things that they lost for the sake of gaining Christ. And if you give up that foundation of how you gained Christ, how sad would that be? Remember how you gave up all these things in order to pursue Christ. Remember that you were willing to suffer. Now, were you willing to suffer for some distortion of what Christ had done for you? Or for the actual gift that came through him? Did you endure it? Did God give you the power through your suffering because that you were good enough to receive it? Or did you endure suffering because God was good good enough to give you His grace? Now, they're enduring specific kind of suffering and persecution, but the same is true for us who believe today. There's ways in which we're suffering, and God would call those moments of suffering and His nearness to us, to our minds, to remind us of the power of the gospel that we've received, that His Spirit has been given to us. And the third thing he calls them to remember is the Holy Spirit. There's three places in this passage alone where he says, you received the Holy Spirit. you begun by the Spirit. You were supplied by the Spirit, working miracles among you. And so he's asking them, did you somehow receive this supernatural gift of God's presence and glory in your life because of something that you did? Or because of something that you heard and believed? And he's reminding them of the reality of the Spirit in their lives today, not just in the moment that they believed, but the power to walk in faith comes by the Spirit. Now, this is really important for us to believe that the Holy Spirit is actually an entity of the Trinity. He exists He's not some force like Star Wars. He is in this room. He dwells inside of everyone who believes. The Holy Spirit is a real entity. He's real and he's alive. And if there's any way that you might pursue the Christian life outside of his power, it is doomed to fail. It's going to be futile. So if we forget the power of the Holy Spirit both in our, conver- in our conversion, then we will Forsake the power of the Holy Spirit in our progression in this faith. And this is really important. I I just heard this uh, research this past week from Barna. They surveyed and found a large percentage of self-proclaimed Christians do not believe in Satan or in the Holy Spirit. They just believe they're some type of beings that are, are, they're not even real beings. They're just symbolic of something. They go on to say in this article, look at this, much like their perceptions of Satan, most Christians do not believe that the Holy Spirit is a living force either. Overall, 38% strongly agreed and 20 agreed somewhat that the Holy Spirit is, quote, a symbol of God's power or presence, but is not a living entity. Just one-third of Christians disagreed that the Holy Spirit is not a living force. While 9% were unsure. It's so alarming, Right? To think that there are people who would call themselves believers, maybe even perhaps born-again believers, who don't actually believe the Holy Spirit is real. <laughs> and, and as alarming as that as is, like if you're looking at it outside of you going, yes, those poor people who do not know he's real. Here's what I want to warn you with. Even if you believe the Holy Spirit is alive and real and active, what practical difference does it make in your day-to-day life? in your understanding of your salvation or even more so today in your sanctification? Because many of us would say like on a theological quiz, yes, the Holy Spirit is real and true and he's alive today. But the real question is, do we know that he's active right now? What difference does it make to your prayer life? What difference does it make to your resting or your striving? What difference does it make that we actually believe that the Holy Spirit was involved in our conversion? It can bring great rest for those of us who feel and experience the mission of God in our lives because we know that ultimately He's the one who has to do the awakening of the dead. It also brings great power for us as we seek to believe with faith. If the believing of faith is what appropriated the Holy Spirit in the first place, it is also how we walk by the Spirit day to day. So, so much of our salvation, so much of what God has done in the past, if you look back and remember how he saved you, how he's redeeming you, Those ways in which he's worked in history, in your personal life, is also how he works today in your life. By receiving with faith and responding to the Holy Spirit. That's how it all began. If you are in Jesus Christ, it didn't happen because you were born with the pedigree of a Christian. It happened because God said, You're mine, and I want you to be my own. And it's really important that we remember this because if we forget it, as we're prone to do, we will live by some other means to accomplish all that God is inviting us into. So, how do we get that blessed life? Hashtag blessed. How do we get it? It's not just by remembering what God has done in our own personal lives and story of redemption. It's, it's remembering how he's acted throughout creation from the very beginning. Listen, God didn't somehow come up with this idea of grace in the New Testament, Okay. It's not like a new idea that God would bring your, give you righteousness imputed to you by faith. He didn't just start that with Jesus, okay? That started way back when. And that's, where Paul, that's why Paul would bring up Abraham. All these people would have been familiar with the life of Abraham. Every Jewish person was wondering, how do I live the blessed life? Now all the people that were coming into the Christian faith, they're going, how do I belong to this blessed family? Why is that? I want to kind of give... Uh, because Paul goes there, we're going to go to what is the covenant of God towards those of faith. Last week, we talked about the answer to the first question. How is someone good? Now, this is the answer to the second question. How do we live that good life? How do we live in that blessed life? That's the question for every Jewish believer. How do we belong to this family of faith? And so part of the answer to that question had to do with another question. How did this whole blessing and narrative of God's blessing begin? And so the first thing he says in verse 6 is remember Abraham's righteousness. How did it start? Because you're not going to receive God's righteousness in your place for your sins by some other way than it started. This is before the law. This is before, all, this is before Abraham's circumcision. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's before all these things he had done. God counted it to him as righteousness. When? When did he, when did God see Abraham as righteous? It was when he believed God's words towards him. And when he believed, God counted it to him as righteousness. This story starts in Genesis chapter 12. If you're not familiar with Genesis chapter 12, I just suggest reading chapter 12 through 15 of Genesis like five times this week and ask the Lord how did you, how and why did you bless Abraham? Because the only reasonable explanation is because God is just good and he did it, okay? Because Abraham is a pagan like everyone else. He doesn't have great potential. God just looks at him and says, I've got a promise for you. Chapter 12, it'll be on the screen. It says this, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I'll show you and I will make you a great nation. That sounds cool. That sounds really cool. I'm going to bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Look at the look at the way that God blesses. I'm going to bless you so you can bless others and it's going to come through this seed. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, this blessing isn't just for you. It's for everyone around you. It's for everyone who loves you. Those that love you and bless you, they're going to be blessed. Those who curse you, they're going to be cursed. And through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So he's saying, look, you're not just my people, Abraham, through you. I'm going to do this amazing thing. And it's not just going to be with the, the Israelites. It's going to be for all the peoples. And before you get too lost in this whole narrative of, like, God's people and who are all the peoples, look, everybody in this room, unless, uh, unless you're some... Uh, born a Jew by birth, all of you are Gentiles, and this is really good news for you. Because this means that we get to be in on the who has the hashtag blessed life. This means that everybody who wasn't from the lineage of Abraham one day would be part of this great blessing where God intended to show off who he, was, who he is and how he works. And so Abraham, he's not, not Abraham yet, God comes to him again in chapter 15 of Genesis. Again, go back and read this. This is your homework assignment this week. He comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to be a shield around you. (laughs) I'm going to reward you and it's going to be very, very great. And Abraham is looking at God and he's like, but how? How's it going to happen? I'm super old. I don't have any kids. Me and my wife are beyond child-rearing age. How am I going to become some great nation? How, Lord? And in this moment of Abraham asking, how will you do it? God brings him outside. And he says, look up at heaven. Number the stars. If you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. I just want to pause for the beauty of this moment, this intimate moment with God and Abraham where Abram is full of doubt. He's wondering how in the world will God do it? And rather than explaining, you know, well, there's first again, there's going to be like all these things happen and and you got David and you're going to have 400 years of captivity. He's going to explain that in just a minute, okay? But before he does that, he's like, I want you to come outside and look at the stars for me. I can imagine, you know, there's not a lot of light pollution back in Abram's day. <laughs> not a lot of city lights that are interrupting his view of all the stars. And he looks up at them, and he's just amazed. Who has been beneath the stars before and stood? Just how can you not possibly be amazed by looking at the stars? And Abram looks up at them, and God says, so shall your descendants be. In other words, I'm going to do it really good, Abram. <laughs> I'm going to do this really, really Amazing thing. And in that moment, as Abram is looking at the stars, Abram believes the Lord. He's thinking, look, this is impossible, but God made the stars. Of course it's possible. And now I love the song uh, by Rich Mullins. You guys know this song? (laughs) Sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he lit had been lit just for me. And we're still strangers in this land. For everyone who believes from that day forward, we're a fulfillment of that promise. And the profound nature of this promise and why Paul would bring it up is, it's all throughout the New Testament, but Romans chapter 4 says it like this. Look, if Abram or Abraham would have been justified by works, then perhaps he'd have a reason to boast. But he wasn't. it says, How was he counted righteous? How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Another rhetorical question. Was it before he had done the good things that were a result of the promise? Or was it after when God counted him righteous? It was before. Everybody's going, It's before God. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Now this is the confusion of the Galatians. They're going... I guess we got to do these things in order to be part of God's special family. And Paul's going, nope. Remember Abraham. It was, was it before or after? Did he do the results of his faith after God counted him righteous or before? And so all Abraham did was just believe in faith. And God counted it to his account as righteous. And so, how can we belong to this covenant it's only by faith. Another question Paul seems to be answering here is not just how do we get to be righteous, but how do you get to be adopted into this great family of God? Hashtag blessed family. How do you get to be part of it? How do you get to be adopted? And he's saying it's those of faith. It's the only possible way to receive this blessing. Without faith, it's impossible. So if you're living your life in some other way other than receiving what God has done for you and believing it and acting as if he did something you could not afford, that you could not do for yourself, if you live in that reality, that is the life of faith. In Hebrews 11:6, it says this, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So using the example of Abraham, Paul shows them the parallels between the covenant of God with Abraham, this new covenant of God with everyone who will believe. And so the only way to be righteous, the only way to be part of this family is to hear it and believe it. And so I want to ask you, do you hear this? Do you believe it? Give me a nod if you do, because there's this there's this moment for all of us where we have to continue to believe it. Genesis 15 goes on to describe this moment where God says, Here's what's going to happen. And he, he tells him to go get some animals, cut them in half. And this was kind of like signing a contract back in Abram's day. Okay? So there's a place on every contract where you sign, and whoever you're making the contract with, they also sign. And there's both of your names. God causes a deep sleep to come over Abram, and God uh, goes through these pieces of these sacrificed animals. And in other words, he's saying, look, I'm going to sign both parts. You don't walk through this. I'm walking through it for you. So the evidence that you belong to Jesus, that your righteousness is, him, is in him, is you hearing this and believing that he signed both parts of the contract. He's ultimately fulfilling both his part of the covenant and our own. And so we stand firm in that place, and that's how we know that we're a child both of Abraham and ultimately of the king. And so God's invitation today is to recalibrate yourself to this reality, to stand firm in the gospel because in Galatians 5.1 it says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. How do we stand firm in this place regularly? Well, I can can tell you, it's gonna take a a regular recalibration. You do not somehow start off Christian life and not drift away from the principles by which you were saved. All of us are always out of alignment. We still have that restless puppy syndrome. You know what I'm saying? We're just trying. Our rest is in Jesus. Our rest is in Jesus. But we're like other things, other ways, other ways to be good, other ways to be right, other ways to be hashtag blessed. And so why does it matter? Because you have a natural tendency to wander away from this truth that Christ alone is enough Jeff Anderselt says it this way in Gospel Fluency. Belief in the gospel is not a one-time decision or conviction that we need salvation only for our past lives and future afterlives. Belief in the gospel is an ongoing expression of our ongoing need for Jesus. Standing firm in it means we continue to put our faith in him for our past, for our present, for our future. So I want to ask you to do this in response to this truth today. Not only stand firm, but be as prone to remember as you are to forget. All of us feel it. When we, we sing that song, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Oh, we can feel it. Prone to drift away from it. We have to regularly practice this discipline Of remembering as much as we forget to remember Jesus Christ. As 2 Timothy says, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel. To remember Christ. Your righteousness, your redemption, it is by grace through faith. It's hearing and believing. And that is also, that's how you began. And it's how you continue. Hearing and believing and believing to remember God's grace towards you. How he's working in your salvation is also how he works in your sanctification. That's how you become more like him. Hearing and believing that he is a generous God and he's making us generous. That he is a loving God and he's making us loving. He's a sacrificial God and he's making us selfless. He's making us to demonstrate his characteristics to the world because we remember and believe that that's what he's like. Not because we try with all our strength. And so today, You've been rescued by God if you believe in him. And his love never quits on you. It never quits saving you and continues to to rescue you. If you've been rescued, he continues to rescue He's also placing you into a family where you can not only know one another, but you can preach the gospel regularly to each other. We say, listen, there's this tendency within the church that when we hear sins confessed, we're like, that's okay. People are sinners. The gospel invites us to, to remember Christ's work. And when we hear sins confessed, we say Christ died for that. And he's offering you pardon. And he's giving you purity for the future. He's bringing you into the work that he accomplished in the past. He's accomplishing it now in the future And those who do not, if you don't know Christ and you're just kind of bewildered by all these stories of Abraham and what in the world's going on, here's what I want you to know. Jesus Christ died once for sins for everyone who believed. If you've never heard this before, hear and believe. And those who already have heard and you already believe, remember and believe. Remember and believe. Be as prone to remember as you are to forget. Let's pray for one another to that end. Jesus, thank you for your word today. I pray that it would just seal in our hearts a great desire to not only know what you've accomplished, but what you are currently accomplishing for us. Father, I pray that we would continue by the Spirit, the Spirit that you've given us that is living in us and among us right now in your people. I pray that that Spirit that has sealed us in the past would continue to call us into the future by your grace. And I pray this... In the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ, amen.